So yeah, I'm still a little under the weather. I uh, lost my voice this last week um, because I've had a cold for a while, and so it's going to sound a little weird, and I'll be drinking a lot of water, but it might mean that I slow down, which I'm hearing people want anyway. So um, interestingly enough, I went on a marriage retreat this week with my wife, and that was exactly the moment when I lost my voice for a couple days. And I'm not sure why God would want that, like why he would lead us to a marriage retreat together and then take away the ability for me to speak for a couple of days, but it did our marriage a lot of good, I think, so. Um, <clears throat> we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're in Matthew chapter seven, and we're looking at the issue of judgment and criticism. So we're gonna read through this together and then, um, and then we'll kind of walk through it. <coughs> Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, says this. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, he will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, um, believe it or not, these two things do have to do with each other, as we'll talk about um, as we walk through this passage. But Jesus is ultimately talking to his disciples about uh, something that he's probably seeing in them. We've been talking for the last few weeks about this idea of this is kind of when we get to the part of the Sermon on the Mount where you get all the don't do this, don't do that, you shouldn't do this, no on that. And we often associate that kind of a thing with negative thoughts and feelings, honestly. We're like, I don't want somebody, even Jesus, going around telling me I shouldn't do everything. Isn't Jesus about more than that? But what Jesus is actually doing is he's talking about how they can be free from these things. There's freedom in these rules that Jesus gives them. The other thing that we see, though, is that Jesus is identifying things in the disciples themselves, and he's talking about them. You can tell from last week and the week before and this week, in the language Jesus is using, he's saying, you're doing this, guys. You, disciples, are doing this, and I'm seeing it, so knock it off, essentially. And he's addressing it with them because he's seeing it. Amongst very much just his own disciples, he's seeing these things happen, right? That issues like materialism and caring about having too much stuff, issues like fear, anxiety, issues like judgment are things that exist within religious groups, it seems, just as much as you would think they exist outside. In fact, there are certain things about the way Jesus teaches or what people think it means to follow him that honestly, if they don't have the right heart, they can they can use it and they can use it in these ways to judge and to be fearful and those kinds of things. So, but here's the thing about being judgmental, about being critical, because Jesus says right out of the gate, judge not, right? Seems like a pretty black and white thing, pretty blanket thing, but don't we need to judge, right? Don't we need to be critical? Don't we need to think through things and make good, wise, reasonable decisions, right? I mean, I think that we do. I think that a lot of our safety and our health and our life is built, built upon the idea that we Um, think through things, and we make judgments and decisions about things all the time. I can't think of a better example of this 
than the idea of hitchhikers, okay? Because if you're driving down the road and you see a sketchy looking hitchhiker, then your judgment is gonna start to kick in, right? And uh, you're not gonna pick up every person that you see, right? Especially if you have kids in the car. I asked the first service this, so I gotta ask you guys, how many people here have ever picked up a hitchhiker? Wow, all right, all right. Really? <laughs> it looks like Carol's like, what? To Steve? Like, you really did? Um, I guess Carol wasn't there. <coughs> um, there were a lot more people in the first service. I just want to say that. Okay, they raised their hands. So it was like 100%. So you guys got some work to do. Um, so I have, uh, I, have, I have encountered this. I have a, I have a story about this. I was driving. Uh, I was on a road trip in college with Ellie, and uh, we were dating at the time, and then my roommate, this guy Andrew, and her roommate, this girl Amy, and we were all, um, and then like her sister, I think, we were all on this road trip together. We wanted to go to Idaho, and so we left Bakersfield, California, and we drove to Idaho in this minivan, and we got to this part of the drive that if you've ever been on a drive like this, and you get to somewhere like this, you remember it because it's something that you wouldn't forget. You get to the part where it starts to say, there's these signs that say, like, last gas, last gas for, for however many hundreds of miles or whatever, right? Last food for however many hundreds of miles, last bathroom for however many hundreds of miles, right? And then we get to those and then we're just in the middle of nowhere. We're in Utah, we're driving through the desert in Utah and uh, or maybe Nevada, I don't remember, but we're driving in the middle of the desert and we are, it, it, it was nighttime, we drove through the night. So it was like nighttime and then dawn as we were in this sort of like no man's land part of our drive. And so the sun comes up, it's daylight, light and there is nothing. I mean, you can't see anything but desert anywhere. And we hadn't even been passing cars. We weren't passing any cars. And of course our reception goes out. Of course our reception goes out, right? And so we are driving in the middle of nowhere, not seeing anything when we see a man walking down the road. We don't see a car and then a man. We just see a man wearing a scuba outfit, <laughs> right, right, a scuba suit, okay, flippers over his shoulder, walking down the highway in the middle of the desert, and I pass him, of course, and then I, I stop and I go, okay, guys, like, we, we can't, we can't, we can't leave this guy out here, and they're like, okay, okay, <coughs> so we, we turn the minivan around. We go back. We like, oh, do we have enough space? No, I'm not sure. No, guys, come on. We have enough space. We can do this. So we turn around. We go. We pick him up. And uh, so he gets in the car. Smells really bad, which I would imagine is what happens if you've been walking in the desert in a wetsuit and, uh, and all that stuff for a while. And you're carrying tanks and everything, too. And, and he gets in the car. And we're like, what? what are, like, what are you? Like, what is going on? What is this, you know? Because it's like the beginning of a riddle, right? Like, you're in the middle of a desert, there's a man in a scuba suit, what happened, right? Figure it out. So I ask him, and here's what he says. He says, a long time ago, it actually starts with a long time ago, by the way, a long time ago, he says, they tested bombs out here in the desert, and they made these huge craters with the bombs. And the craters filled up with water. And they made these really cool, like, lakes. And so I come out here and I scuba dive in these lakes. And I got out of a lake and someone had stolen my stuff and my van. And it was, like, way off the road because he had to, like, drive off the road to get to it. Can you believe someone did that? It's a horrible person. I hope this person, you know, 
you, I think we're all hoping, right? Justice, right? We believe in a just God. So something will happen to that person one day and it'll be hilarious. But so we drove him. So, so he just walked to the highway and started walking, you know? And then we picked him up. We picked up this hitchhiker, right? And uh, we drove him to the next city, which was probably like an hour away. And then uh, he started being a little too friendly. And we were like, all right, see ya, you know, um, dropped him off at the city and we took off. I mean, you, you'd have to be a little bit of an interesting person to probably go out in the middle of the Utah desert in the middle of night. Uh, that's, that's what it was. It was at night. He was like night snorkeling or scuba diving in the middle of a crater in a desert with his van, right? Okay. So anyway. Yeah, that makes sense, right? There's radiation. Yeah, wow. So much more is making sense now, actually, things that happen after that. So we would agree that it is a good idea to be a critical thinker and to use judgment sometimes. So when Jesus says, do not judge, he's not actually condemning criticism, critical thinking, or judgment. In fact, as we see in, uh, in the very, one of the very last verses, he indicates that this is more of a method for how we be critical as Christians, right? How we judge, if you will, and to do it appropriately. So there's a couple of things here that we see in this passage. One, there's a problem. Jesus has seen a problem in his disciples. By the way, I'm really excited because I have my first sermon outline ever. After being here for many months, it's on the back of the notes, and I'm so excited because it is three points, and they all start with the same letter. So really pumped about that. If you ever see three points, you know two of them are really good, and one of them's kind of like, uh, you know, you got to have three. You got to have three, right? And if you see four, you know they're really good four points, but you'll never know. You'll never know which the one is. So the first thing is the problem here. Jesus has seen a problem in his disciples, and he's addressing it with them. And the problem is that they are taking the things that he has taught them, the truths about the kingdom and what it is to be a disciple, and they're using them at, like on other people. They're using them to judge and to criticize and to evaluate each other, not themselves, right? He's seeing them do this. He's seeing them do it with their very brothers, and so he's talking to them about it. And this is what's so great about Jesus is that he doesn't just give us the things to do, but he stops all along the way and he says, but listen, if you do this the wrong way, if you abuse this, then here's what will happen and you will miss the whole point. And that's incredibly important. And that's what he's doing here, is he's saying you can take all these things I'm teaching you and you can use them to judge other people, to just be a person who's more critical than all the other people because now you have this thing called the kingdom of God that you can throw on people and be critical with. And so he sees this problem and he deals with it very directly to them by saying, stop judging each other but instead look inwardly at yourself. And what he says to them is pretty intense. He says in these first couple of verses, judge not that you not be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He goes on to call them hypocrites later on. And it's because of this thing that he's talking about with the measurement. He's saying that you're using uneven measurements, okay? Not only 
are you judging other people? Are you being critical of other people? But you're doing it in a way that isn't even with the same level of judgment and criticism that you apply to yourself. You're using different weights, okay? You're, you're using a much different weight with them than you use for yourself. And I'm sure you have all kinds of reasons for that, but you're doing it nonetheless, right? This is like, this is like you get out the gram scale for the other people, and you say, you're going to be weighed on the gram scale. I'm going to weigh every gram of every bad thing that you've ever done. And when it's time to weigh yourself, you're like, hey, let's hop on that truck scale over there, right? And I'll hop on it, and it's like, look, it says zero. It says there's nothing, anything, there's not even anything on here. I'm doing great. I'm doing fine. This is uneven measure. It's unequal measurement. And he's saying you're doing it to each other. And that's not how this works. So not only are you pointing the finger at another, but you're doing it unevenly and unequally. Now, <coughs> we do this for a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons why we're critical of other people at all, why we bother to take the time to actually care about what other people are doing is because the world that we live in is made up of other people, it turns out. And the way that they live and the way that they act has an effect on our lives. And so we look at people and we say, I don't like it that you're yelling at someone right now because I don't want to live in a world full of people who yell because yelling is wrong. And I don't want to live in a world where everyone's yelling at me and everyone's yelling at each other, so you shouldn't yell. And you see someone gossip and you say, you shouldn't be gossiping because we should be able to trust each other. And I want to live in a world where people can trust each other and where I can trust the people around me. And so stop gossiping because you're getting in the way of the world that I want to live in. And you say, you see someone being mean to their spouse and you say, that's not right. You shouldn't be mean to your spouse because that's not how it ought to be in this world right? I want to live in a world in which people are kind to their spouses, and that's not the right thing to do. But the problem is we apply a different measure to ourselves because we say, okay, yes, I yelled, but I've had a long day, and I'm exhausted, and they were doing the thing that people do that drives me crazy, and to be honest, yes, okay, fine, it wasn't good that I yelled, but it probably accomplished some good at the end if we're really honest, right? Because someone got to see how they were making me feel and someone got to see that their actions were causing someone to just yell. And sometimes people need to know how they're making people feel. And yes, I told someone something I wasn't supposed to, but the fact is, you know, they needed prayer, right? They needed prayer. And so I, I spread it around a little bit because you gotta, you gotta do that, right? You know, to pray, just pray for them. And then also I thought maybe, I'm not talking to a person, I thought they deserve to know. They deserve to know this thing. You know, they deserve to know, and so I'm going to tell them. And yes, I know, technically I'm not supposed to, but it's okay in this instance. And you say, yes, I know people shouldn't be mean to their spouses. Okay, I get it. But when I mean, you've been married to somebody for 20 years, and they've been doing the same thing for 20 years, right? This thing they always do, right? And they were supposed to be working on it for 20 years, and they don't seem to be because they're still doing it. And I'm working on my stuff, I'm working on my stuff, and I'm doing a pretty good job, okay? And they are just driving me crazy. And so, yes, when I, yes, okay, yes, they push me over the edge, but you know what, honestly, and yes, I'm sorry other people saw it, but you know what, honestly, like, it probably needed to happen because it's about time that my spouse knows how they're making me feel and, and that other people maybe even know that, yes, this is what it's like to be married to this person, right? We go, we go, listen, okay, it's different, okay, because I understand that there's, it's complex and there's a lot to it. 
And Jesus says, yeah, you can say that stuff all day, but at the end of the day, you're just using different measures. You're just using a different measure with others, even your own brothers and sisters in the church, than you would ever use for yourself. And the other reason that we use these kinds of different measures is because we, we frankly don't understand why people do a lot of the things that they do. And so we're critical of people and we judge them in ways that are unfair and unreasonable because we don't even know their story, right? I mean, to think that, that, to see a person struggling with something, sinning in some way, and say, I hate it when people do that. That's not something I would ever do. But the fact is they do it because of maybe the life that they've lived and maybe the, 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 the choices that they made that led them up to that point, sure. But maybe you never experienced any of those things. And so you don't struggle with that thing as a result. And that doesn't remove from them the responsibility of it. But the fact of the matter is, sin doesn't just appear out of nowhere, right? It comes over time gradually. I, one of the things that I regret the most, I think I've said this before, is, is the harshness with which I, I judged my own parents in their parenting of me at times. And as I grew up and got to know them more as an adult, as, and as I got to know their families and their childhood and their upbringing, I came to realize my parents did a really good job considering where they came from, considering some of the issues that their own families dealt with that were unresolved or were never even spoken of. That what they did with that was actually pretty great. And for years, I had just been naively judging and criticizing, not really knowing fully even what's going on with this person. Um, even even this, this horrible tragedy that has happened in Florida, if, you, if you've read or heard anything about, about the shooter and about his life, it is absolutely devastating that, that a young person's life would go that way. That orphan at a very young age and adopted, only to have his adopted father die, and then only just a few years ago have his adopted mother die, and have no family and no connections and be completely alienated from society in that way. Does that remove from him the responsibility of what he's done? Of course not. Of course not, but we see that people have been through a lot. And so we, we judge with unfair measure, and we ought not to, because we don't honestly even know half the time the circumstances that a person is dealing with that are different from ours. We say, I came from a great family where everybody loved each other, and everyone treated each other with respect and kindness. Not only have I never said that word before, but I don't even think I heard that word growing up. Well, that's not the same for a lot of people. Regardless, Jesus is saying, Stop judging each other because you're using uneven measure. And I think this is something that a lot of us can see in our own lives when we're honest. And so he goes on and he gives them one of the most ridiculous examples you'll ever read that Jesus gives. This is like the closest to stand-up comedy that Jesus does because it's so ridiculous and he means for it to be ridiculous. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you even say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus was a carpenter's son, grew up in a carpenter's shop, and Jesus is most likely talking about sawdust and a plank of wood. People say log and they say plank. Um, and, I think, and I think that what he's talking about is these things that he often saw growing up, which is the tiniest little speck of wood, which is like a little piece of sawdust, and then a full-on plank of wood that you built something out of, right? A huge piece of wood cut out of a log. And he says this to his disciples. He points out to them this thing, which is, listen, you are not somebody who should be judging right now because you have got a plank sticking out of your eye. I can see it. This guy can see it. He can see it. We all know it's there. 
let's be honest about it. Maybe you're not the person who should be judging right now. Maybe you're not the one in a position to be critical. Now, there's a couple reasons why Jesus uses this example. Why somebody would do this. Why he picks a plank and a speck. The first is this. It's obvious that this person, in the analogy that he's using, in this metaphor that he's using, this person knows there's a plank in their eye, okay? You can't, you can't ignore that there's actually a plank in your eye. So he uses an example of something that someone would have to know is there. And the reason is this, because he's talking about somebody who has chosen to ignore the obvious thing in their own life, because they think that that's okay. So, so for some reason, this person, in this analogy, is saying, listen, I know there's a plank sticking out of my eye. You know there's a plank. Okay, we get it. We all know. But the reason I'm being critical, what I'm being critical about is important enough that we can look past my thing for a second. Let's look past my thing. Let's get, let's get beyond my thing. Because for whatever reason, I think that God's okay with us addressing the speck in your eye and not the thing in my eye. And Jesus is saying, well, guess what? He's not. And I know because I know him really well. A plank is huge. You know that a plank is there. Why? Why would God? Why would, why would God be okay with us looking past? Because we do this, right? We look past the obvious thing in our life, and we speak to the minuscule thing in someone else's life, and we justify it by saying, well, yeah, it's okay, though. God, God knows. God knows that that's what's going on. And one is this, is that we honestly see the world by seeing good people and bad people. And we say, I'm one of the good guys. Yeah, I got a plank in my eye, but I'm still a pretty good guy. And they're not. Honestly, we don't see good things and bad things. We see good people and bad people. And we say bad people, they need to be dealt with. They need to be addressed. People need to point things out and they need to see them and those things need to be dealt with. I'm a good person. So yes, I've got junk and yes, I've got things going on. But that stuff, we can get past that stuff for now. I'm dealing with it. I'm working on it. I will deal with it. I will work on it. And what's tricky about this is that it gets harder the longer we follow Jesus sometimes. Because the beginning of faith is always, you must always begin, you must begin from a place of repentance and humility, from a place of brokenness. Choosing to follow Jesus, day one, involves repentance, revolves humility and brokenness. So we start at a place of humility, maybe even starting at a place saying there's an old life and there's a new life. And my old life is so much nearer that I am more humbled knowing that. And as I'm still working my way, maybe through this new life that I have and figuring it out. And so the longer we do it, the more we see ourselves as a good guy, a good woman, a good person. We say, I'm one of the good ones now. I've been doing this for years. I've been involved in, in leadership and doing things. And I've been ministering to people. I've shepherded people. I've mentored or discipled people. I've had kids. I've raised them. Whatever it is, I've been doing this for a long enough amount of time that I'm one of the good guys. And so we don't see the plank that's in our eye year after year, time after time, relationship after relationship. And, and the further along we get, the harder it can often be to see. That's why it's so tricky. We think God wants bad people to know that they're bad. And it's so I'm gonna help him. I can't think of a better example of the blindness that comes from this than what we read about with King David and the prophet Nathan. King David, you read through all of 1 Samuel and it's just like about him becoming King David. Such a big deal that he becomes king. This is God's king. He's a man after God's heart. God chooses him. He's a good guy. He's a good king. And then he starts to do some really bad things. 
He sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And then her husband comes back from battle and he has him killed. He has him killed. And all along the way, David doesn't even see that what he's doing is so wrong. Why? Why doesn't he see it? Because he's King David. He's like, I'm King David. I don't know if you've heard about me, but I'm a really good guy. Chances are, if we want to talk about good people in the Bible, King David's going to be one of them. And so Nathan, his friend and the prophet, is like, I got to confront this guy. I got to help this guy see. And he ends up having to get very creative to do it. Because he's like, I can't just talk to him like, face-to-face straight up about it. We gotta, I got to get creative. And so he does, and here's what he says to him. We read it in 2 Samuel 12. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. By the way, this is like the saddest story you're ever going to hear. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Are you hooked? (laughs) Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David is such a sucker. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He still doesn't see. He's still thinking, I'm a good guy. This guy is awful. Who is this guy? I want to, I want to, we need to deal with this guy. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." You see, it is so easy, even when there's a plank in our own eye that is so obvious even to those around us to think, but the other person is worse. And so it's okay for me to set aside my stuff and to deal with them. And Jesus is saying, but it's not. You have to deal with your stuff. The other reason why we think this and we do this this thing where we look past our thing to someone else is because we just fundamentally misunderstand how the kingdom of God works. I remember first thinking in ministry um, early on that my job was to help people see their sins and then stop doing them. I thought, well, this is easy, all right? And, uh, and I learned pretty quickly that number one, I was wrong a lot about what I thought I saw and about what I saw. Number two, people often didn't see it themselves, no matter how much I told them directly. I wasn't as creative as Nathan. 
And number three, when they did see it, oftentimes people weren't ready to change, weren't ready to let go, or ready to deal with their stuff. And you can probably relate to this if you've ever done any kind of ministry, if you've shepherded a small group, if you've discipled a person, if you've worked in children's ministry or with youth, or even as you've raised your own children, perhaps, you have seen that you, you have to get beyond the point of thinking that it's just about pointing out their problems and then saying, now let's just get over these things. That it's about something more than that. The kingdom of God is about something more than that. And we often misunderstand it for that. And that's another reason why we go, well, that's why people in positions of leadership often have these huge sins that go unaddressed. I have a friend once who, who was a church planter who was having an affair as he was planting a church. And I was like, what are you thinking? Do you think that that actually, that church is going to happen? Do you think that God will allow that to happen? And he said, he said, I thought that the work I was doing was so important that like God wouldn't let my sin get in the way or that God was like okay with my sin. I could look past it because of the other stuff that needed to happen, that needed to be done. And Jesus is saying, you can't look past it. It doesn't work that way. This is the most frustrating thing about going to counseling. If you go with, the, with another person, like a spouse or something, is they say, there's only one person in this room that you can change. And I've got very bad news for you. It's not the one you came to change. <laughs> and you're like, what? That's the whole reason I'm here. I didn't even want to come here. I'm here to change them. And they're like, you can't, but I'd love to help you change you, right? The other reason that we do it is because we get motivated just by frustration and by the anger of what's happening. We're not thinking about it. We're not thinking through it. We're not reasoning through it. It's not even a Jesus thing. We're just saying, I'm frustrated. I'm mad, right? If you have a friend who's going to go confront someone on something, ask them, Why? And if it starts with anything other than, I care about them so much, and, and even then, they may, you know, be getting very creative with their words. But how often do you answer that question and it's like, I'm just so frustrated because, that's not a good reason, don't talk to them. I'm just really angry when they, that's not a good reason either. I just can't stand it when, that's not a good reason. Those are not good reasons. That's not a good reason. It needs to be out of love, right? Nathan goes to David speaking truth in love. What Jesus is doing is he's saying to his disciples that you are to have not a critical spirit of one another, but you're to have a loving spirit of one another. And just like I said about counseling, in a marriage, a healthy marriage, for example, is not about having a critical spirit. You can't, critical your, you, you can't criticize your way, believe it or not, you can't criticize your way to a better marriage. You can love your way to a better marriage. And that's why the way marriage, a good marriage works is not, well, I'm just going to point out the things they need to change, and then once they change them, then we'll do better. But marriage is, I love them, and so out of love for them, I'm going to look inwardly at myself when I'm frustrated and when there's a problem. Because if I'm looking inwardly at myself, and they're, and they're able to look inwardly at their self, themselves, then that is how Christ designed marriage to work. So the first thing that he's saying to them is, is clearly this plank is you're, you're looking past it at this other person, and it's pretty obvious that you're doing that. And so you better have a good reason for it, and there is no good reason for it. But the other thing that he's pointing out with this plank in the eye analogy, this log in the eye analogy, is he's saying that it blinds you because he says here, um, how can you see with this thing in your eye? 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your mother's eye. So we do still help each other. We help each other with the sin in our lives, but you can't see their sin, really. You think you can, but you can't. You're not seeing clearly. You're blinded by your sin because that's what sin does to us. It blinds us. And there's a reason that he said plank in the eye and not in the ear and in the nose and in the mouth. He could have said in your mouth. That probably would have in some way made sense, right? But he doesn't. He says in your eye because it's blinding them and it's getting in the way of their ability to actually see what's going on with the other person. I have to share this because I think it's like the funniest thing ever. So if you know anything about Apple, you know that they just built a brand new headquarters and uh, they call it the spaceship, okay? This is it. $500 million. Of course, that's what Apple's headquarters would look like, right? And uh, it's built mostly out of like concrete and a lot of metal and tons and tons of glass, okay? Glass walls, okay? And uh, it's the coolest place ever, of course. They just opened it over this last year, and I read this in the news. This is so awesome. I can't believe it's true. Apple employees are reportedly walking into walls (laughs) at the company's fancy new glass office. They are walking into glass walls, okay? And the best part about it is if you read the story, it's actually a combination of two things. It's all the walls are glass and everyone's on an iPhone or an iPad. Like that's what it says. It says like they're always looking down when they're walking, everyone there, and then they're running into glass. And so they started putting up post-its on the glass walls so that people see them and they don't run into them, which I'm sure the architects are so excited about, right? I love it. They can't see. It's hilarious. They're running into glass walls. Why is it so hilarious? I don't know. And Jesus is talking about this idea of being blind, and he's saying that you can't see with this thing in your eye. Jesus is saying that you aren't really capable with the sin going on in your lives of judging the sin of other people's lives. You're not. You're not objective. You're subjective. And so you need to deal with this stuff first because only then can you help your brother. Only then can you help your sister. And only then can the church function and these disciples together function the way that they're supposed to. Now Jesus moves forward from this and he says pretty much the craziest, most random thing ever. He starts talking about dogs and pigs, right? He says this, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, you read this. This is one of the harder sayings of Jesus, honestly. You read this by itself and you go, what? Are you really saying what it sounds like you're saying? Because it sounds like you're saying that there are people who are pigs and dogs in this world and that they shouldn't even, you shouldn't even bother giving them the gospel, giving them the kingdom of God. Is that really what you're saying? When you take what Jesus is saying and you take it within the context here, because it seems kind of random, right? Why would he say this here leading into the next passage that he talks about? You begin to see what it is that he's talking about. And what he's talking about still, again, has to do with this idea of criticism because Jesus has just finished painting a picture for his disciples and the picture is this. Here's how it looks for a disciple of mine to really be critical, okay? The first thing they're gonna do is they're, not, they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're gonna be inwardly critical, and they're going to be outwardly loving, right? They're going to look inward, and they're going to love outward. But believe it or not, that concept is painful and foreign for people. And as a result, 
many people will not even be able to take it. And here's what I mean by this, okay? Uh, a pig and a dog. What are they? Why is Jesus talking about them? When you open up the gate to a pig pen and you throw something in, that pig is thinking one thing and one thing only. What is it thinking? Food. It's thinking food. It's hungry and it wants to eat. And pigs eat almost anything. And if you throw in something and the pig can't eat it, pigs back then were pretty scary. They will try to just eat you. Pigs eat people. You know that? Like you can throw people in and pigs will eat them. They're pretty scary. I mean, big enough, scary enough ones, right? So what he's saying is he's saying, when you throw something to a dog, you throw something to a pig, they want to eat it. That's all they care about. They're simple. It's basic. I'm hungry, I want food. I'm hungry, I want food. I'm hungry, I want food. That's all they're thinking about. And when you give the kingdom of God, the the message of the kingdom of God, when you explain it, as Jesus is explaining it, to someone who is only interested in one thing, I am hungry, I want food, i.e., In other words, I want something that will just fill me up. That is all I want. I want something that will just fill me up. I want something that will just fill me up. I want something that will taste good and that will just fill me up. That's all I want. That's all I need. When you throw them something else, it is unappealing and it gets trampled underfoot. There's a reason that Jesus says that the road is narrow to the kingdom of heaven. It is because the most people are looking for something for sure, but they're looking for something that will simply fill them up and make them feel good and they can walk away. And so you take the teachings of Jesus and you go, I like that, that makes me feel good. I like that, that makes me feel good. And Jesus is teaching a very hard thing to his disciples. He's teaching how to be critical of yourself as a disciple. And this is not a palatable thing for many people. It's hard. We fight against it, right? We don't want it to work this way. We want it to work exactly the opposite. And so this is yet another example to us of how if you are a follower of Jesus and a disciple, you really have to swallow a message that is difficult, that involves self-denial and ultimately denying yourself and death to yourself. And many won't be able to swallow that. Many won't be able to find that palatable and will simply spit it out and say, I'm not interested. I've said this before when I talk about how, how we have to be about the gospel as a church all the time, but we have to be about the whole gospel all the time. And one of the biggest ways that the gospel is distorted is to simply make it palatable for more people to hear and to accept. There are a lot of people with good intentions distorting the gospel, and the way they do it is they remove the part that involves denying yourself, right? You remove the, the repentance. You remove the humility involved. You remove the Jesus saying, look inward, first. And you go, I want them to get the good stuff, and then they'll come back and get the hard stuff. But people don't come back and get the hard stuff, it turns out. They go, oh, okay, that's what it's like to follow Jesus. I'll just kind of read through it, kind of pick out the stuff that I like. That's good. I'm sure that he wouldn't ever want me to do anything that hurts, and then we'll be fine. Jesus is saying that this is how the kingdom operates. And we read this, and we go, what? I'm not a pig. I'm not a dog. I see the beauty of the kingdom. I see the wonderfulness of the kingdom. I see the value of the kingdom. I see that it's a pearl. And that's the crazy thing about it. He doesn't just say like like you throw it some food that's good for it. No, they'll eat it. They'll eat it. You throw them food, they'll eat it. You throw a pig food, they will eat it. You throw them something even closely resembling food, they will eat it. You throw them something that they can't eat, that they can't digest, that they can't bite, they will spit it out, trample it underfoot, and they will get angry. It's like a rock to them. But it's a pearl. 
It's so valuable, it's so beautiful, right? You'd have to be crazy and blind to not see how beautiful and valuable it is. And so we go, I see that, I see the beauty, I see the value of it. And so it's a reminder to us in these teachings that Jesus gives us, like, guys, this is a valuable, beautiful, powerful thing that I'm telling you about. I want you to get it. I want you to understand it. I want you to take it in. I want you to apply it. Don't eat it. It's not for eating. It's not for consumption. It's for even more than that. It's not just to satisfy your hunger for something that will make you feel better in the end, like it does. Is there anything more satisfying at times? than judging people? Like, is there anything more satisfying at times than being critical of someone else? I learned early on that it felt so good to look down on other people. I felt, it felt so good. It, it was like this, like, I'm sure there's science behind it in my brain, but there was like, there was like, you know, what is it, like, in, like endorphins? Is that the good ones, right? Or, or other, like, it's like, it's like the moment that I would see something in another person and I would not like it. And I put words to it especially. I felt better about myself. I began to realize over years that sometimes those were the only times I felt good about myself, was when I saw things in other people that I didn't like, that weren't good. And that was one of the hardest realizations for me that Jesus brought into my life years into being a Christian, showing me you're only really happy about yourself when you're kind of down on other people, right? And so what does it look like for you to get beyond that? And I think for many followers of Jesus who love him, we deal with that same thing. Judging feels good. Criticism feels good, even towards our own brothers and sisters. Because that's, that's the nice thing about, you've got to imagine that part of what's going on with these disciples is they're going, I kind of want to be the best disciple, right? I mean, you know, they do say it to him all the time. Jesus, come on, who's the best disciple, right? I'm the best, I'm the best disciple, right? I'm the best disciple, right? You've got to imagine that part of this is a disciple saying, like, I'm better than that one when I see the speck in his eye and I point it out and I repeat it to others and I say that's something that's got to be dealt with or it's going to hurt all of us. Jesus calls us to look inward and to love outward. He calls us to love one another in this completely different way. I was reading through the um, uh, First Corinthians this week. If you're reading in the bookmark with us as a church, it's reading First Corinthians six, and uh, Paul's talking to the church about lawsuits. Super exciting stuff. He's talking about lawsuits from believers. Yeah, Chris is so pumped, right? And he's like, "Oh man, finally, we're getting to the good stuff, right?" He and, and he actually says what Chris doesn't want to hear because he basically says like, "Don't take each other to court. Don't take each other to trial. Stay away from those lawyers. They're terrible, right?" Um, he he does kind of say some things that sound sort of like you know not nice towards people that do this for a living. But anyway, he says he says he says this to them when he's talking about how they settle disputes amongst themselves, brothers and sisters in the church that are taking one another to court over disagreements. Here's what he says. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Well, I can think why not, right? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. There is an ethic here. And this is the ethic that drives the way that we love each other as the church. And it is this. When given the choice, I will choose to take it upon myself. I would rather bear wrongdoing 
than, more, than wrongfully criticize, wrongfully accuse, wrongfully take to court, wrongfully oppose someone. If given the option between erring on one side or the other, I will err on the side of being harmed. Even at the hands of a brother or sister. Because that's how this works. Paul advocates this for the church. He says, you guys are having real problems because you're not doing this. And later on in this chapter, he goes on to talk about love. You know, love is patient, love is kind. Talking to the church about that, not because he stops right there and is like, hold on, I gotta perform this wedding real quick and I'm gonna talk about this thing. No, he talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13 later on because he's still talking about the way that they should be treating each other. And all the words he uses and all the explanations and the illustration that goes in that is Paul saying, here's how you love one another. This is incredible what Jesus is saying to the disciples, right? He's saying you don't have to just look at the speck in your brother's eye, but he is also saying that we need each other, right? What I think he's saying is this. What I think he's painting us a picture of is this. It is me as a believer in the church saying, I have looked inward and I have found something and I need help dealing with it. And I go to my brother who helps me deal with the speck in my eye and he can see it because he's dealt with the plank in his own eye. It is not us going to each other constantly saying, I see this in you, I see this in you, I see this in you, and it needs to get worked on. That won't make us better. It won't make us stronger. It will make us weaker, and it will make us less divided. Let's pray. Father, you call us to live and treat one another in a way that frankly doesn't seem fair at all. doesn't seem reasonable, really. But you are the God of unreasonable and unfair trades. Scripture tells us that you take our sorrows and our pain and our suffering and our trials and our difficulty and our fear and you trade those things out. You swap them out for joy. That is not an even trade. But you do it anyway because you're a God who knows that this is how grace and mercy work. And Lord, we unevenly give out grace and mercy. We expect more of grace and mercy for ourselves and more judgment for others rather than freely giving out grace and mercy to others and bringing judgment upon ourselves at time. And Lord, I pray that we would be convicted not to look outwardly at our brother and sister, but to look inwardly, not out of, out of fear or inadequacy, not out of a, out of a, out of a sense of, of, of failure or defeat, but rather out of a sense of we're so grateful for what you've done for us that we want to live in a way that is more like Christ. And as we do that, we look inwardly, Lord. We are so grateful for what you've done for us, Lord. We are so grateful that you have looked beyond our sin, Lord, and that you have made a way for us to be with you. And that's why we worship you now, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Those last things there, the always, um, they are the opposite of a critical spirit. It's the opposite of having a critical spirit towards a brother or towards a sister. It's having an attitude that protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Even if you just take one of those words, hopes, that, that we hope 
for the other person, that we put our hope in uh, what God can do in them rather than see all the problems and the faults in them, and that that is what binds us together and gives us strength as a body. I can't think of anything more encouraging than these words that Paul writes to the church about love, and that these words apply to the church about love, and that, and that that's exactly the kind of environment I want to be in when I look inward and I start dealing with some of my stuff. Amen? All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.